Take your Bibles and turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. There are individuals at times when you meet them, they're hard to forget. I was trying to think of individuals like this, and if I was to go back to where I went to college and uh, meet with individuals that were in my time frame, uh, and if I was just merely to say, hey, my good buddy, I would have individuals that knew immediately who I was talking about. There's a young man by the name of John that came my sophomore year, and he was known on that campus of about 5,000 students to pretty much everyone after that first semester because everybody he met, he would say, hey, my good buddy, and he would just start talking with them. And he would do this to everyone. He'd see you in the dining common. If he knew who you were, he would come running over and he'd say, hey, my good buddy, and he would talk to you for a while. And it didn't matter if you were a gal or if you were a guy on campus, it didn't matter. Uh, he would come and talk to you. And uh, he was, you know, his name was John, but most people just knew him as, hey, buddy. That's all they, they knew him as. And uh, it was kind of neat because uh, I knew him just on campus because of being there. But on my, my sophomore or my junior year, he was actually on my hallway. Uh, and uh, he was just down the hallway a couple of doors. And so I got to meet him quite often. But then my senior year, I was actually the one responsible for the hallway. And uh, so I was uh, every once in a while in rooms and the like. And and it was just entertaining because he was actually the one that was responsible for that room, but his roommates loved uh, pulling jokes on him uh, because he just didn't really know how to react to him. He was just kind of that character in the sense of he just didn't know how to respond. I remember walking in one day and everything that should have been on the desktops and the countertops were then attached to the shelving units above or on the ceiling they had just reversed everything and took them and and put them on the ceiling and and of course he came in was completely confused and he came down the hallway and he said how in the world did this happen that all the stuff that was on the countertops now on the ceiling I said ask your roommates uh they may tell you but he was known around campus and uh, anybody that's from that my time period on that uh, college campus would remember hey buddy and probably have a story or two to tell about uh, things that they remember from him. What we're looking at is a church that the Apostle Paul, this church at Thessalonica, is one that Paul remembers much of what went on here, and he remembers it uh, not with, well, fear or anger or frustration. He remembers a lot of what happened in this church, especially their salvation. The time period where they got saved and the transformation that took place, it was something that he did not forget, the Apostle Paul. Because it seems to be as he was uh, ministering to different churches in Corinth and, and in Philippi and in Ephesus and places like that, that the starting for this church was very just one that it was incredible to see what, the God, what God did in a very short period of time and established a church uh, that was one that was well known throughout the world for its testimony for Jesus Christ. So this evening, what I want us to do is to just look at this church. We're looking at a series in uh, this book of First uh, Thessalonians, and it's just simply this, uh, talking about a connecting Christianity in a collapsing culture. 
But you have in the church of Thessalonica, they are ones who connect with uh, the people around them, the culture around them, uh, and they're a Christianity that is drawing others to Christ. That's just their personality. They've got this going on for them. And really, what as we go through, we'll see that there's an example for us to see what happens in a church like this. It's an active church. It's not a passive church. It's an active church seeing things go on. And so as we start this evening, I I just want to just start off. What are the characteristics of a a church that has a, a kind of connecting Christianity about it? Connects with other people. And as you read this letter, it starts off this way. Paul and Silvanus, and Silvanus is just simply another name for Silas, a companion of Paul in Philippi that was beaten and imprisoned with Paul there. Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always uh, for you uh, all making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our lord jesus christ in the sight of god and our father knowing brethren uh, beloved your election of god see for the apostle paul we have to remind ourselves of what happened here in this church it was uh two weeks ago that we talked about this but this is a church that paul came out of the city at philippi uh and came to this church and this church was one that he did not spend a great deal of time uh, with as far as we can tell we know that he spent three synagogue or his three saturdays in a synagogue preaching and convincing people of salvation and we don't know how much longer he was there afterwards but it doesn't seem to be a great deal of time that he's there in the midst of them preaching the gospel and people getting saved the response of the community was such that there was a uh, response of the jewish community especially where they went out and found the common criminals that were in the marketplace and paid them money basically to riot against the christians and bring them before the government officials and claim this that these individuals who are followers of jesus christ are, are turning the world upside down and what they're accusing them of is that they're preaching somebody else other than or they're they're uh calling somebody else uh, caesar rather than caesar himself they have one that they call the lord we would call him the lord jesus christ the lord was a title that would be used for uh, caesar but here the christians are saying here's one who's the lord he's jesus the christ the messiah and they're calling upon this now the government officials realized that something was going on and just simply had the christians there pay off uh, a debt of some kind uh and then the church there sent paul on his way so there's not a lot of time that the apostle paul has with this church but when he's there and the report that he gets back from timothy because we know from the middle of this letter that he sent timothy and timothy was seeing how they're doing and came back that he is uh, remembering the things that happened in this church and it was because this church had characteristics that were reflecting an act of christianity see the apostle paul you have to remember that it's pretty incredible that in almost every one of his letters as you read them you find a statement like we have in verse two we give thanks to god always for you making mention of you all in our prayers remembering without ceasing i mean in this case he says remember you all now what he's saying there is he's not southern okay 
If you were in Southern culture, you all just a reference to anybody in a group and whatever. But in the way that the Greek is set up here, it's saying this. When I remember each one of you in the congregation there, not just generally, he's going through and when he's praying, he's praying for each one of these people in the congregation. And he's saying, I'm remembering this. There were certain things going on and I remember with joy what was going on because what I saw when you got saved here were, here were the characteristics of your Christianity. Look at verse 3. It says this, Remember that ceasing, your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. Those three things that we have there, love, or excuse me, faith, love, and hope, are things that if you just read your New Testament, you'll find those three characteristics put together quite often. Over and over again, you'll find those three things describing Christianity. If you think through it, I'll just give you a few examples. For instance, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where uh, the Apostle Paul there is talking about some of the benefits of being saved. He says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by this faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I mean, you see there, faith, and hope, and love, all these things are just part of the Christian life. Or Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6, it says this, for we through the Spirit as Christians, you have the Spirit in you. Wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision, being a Jew, availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, a Gentile, but faith which worketh by love. Or you have another passage of Scripture where you have in Ephesians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says this, another prayer for another church. The Apostle Paul says this, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven where have ye heard before the word and the truth of the gospel you have lengthy passage in Ephesians chapter 4 where it talks about the characteristics of being saved you'll find this but probably the most famous passage that has these things uh, linked together is that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 you know, people call this the love chapter, and it's in the middle of all of these things that uh, is talking about spiritual gifting and people who have spiritual gifts. Every believer does, but the problem is they were misusing it. They were being showy and selfish about the use of their gifts, whereas Paul says, I'd rather you just display, not your gifts, but display what every Christian should be doing, and that's love. But at the end of that thing, what love is like, it's an activity. You read through those 13 uh, verses in that chapter. Uh, love's never really described other than what it does. And you get to the end of it, it says this, And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, or love. These three, but the greatest of these is charity, is love. So what Paul is talking about here is not just he's randomly saying this is what normal Christian life is like and these are the characteristics of it. This was something he regularly said was going on in the life of believers. They ought to be displaying these three things, faith, love, and hope. And when you read this passage and you go through it, you ought to mark it this way or understand what he's actually saying when he goes through here. He's saying this, that I remember your faith that works, your love that labors, and your hope that's patient. 
anybody reading this in that original language will recognize that what he's saying is that it's not just these characteristics that he's talking about that people have. It's going to be displayed. It's going to be active. I mean, it's hard to see what faith is like and love is like and hope is like, but you can see the effects, the results of what's going on. For the Apostle Paul, he didn't doubt that a person who had faith in Jesus Christ would have works. Now, he does, uh, throughout his uh, passage, uh, or that throughout his letters, make very clear that a person's not saved by works. You read through in Romans chapter 1, he makes very clear that no one's saved by works of the law, but they're justified, have a right standing by faith. The just shall live by faith. But what he then would go on, and he never really stated it, but the Apostle James, uh, the, the brother of Jesus Christ, uh, was one who stated that faith without works is dead. In fact, as you, we went through a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we went through the book of James and we got to this passage where the Apostle Paul in James chapter, or the Apostle Peter, James in that book is just simply saying this, if a person doesn't have faith, he can prove his faith by his works, but there are people who go, well, I have faith, and they don't have works. That person's life is dead. Uh, we would say this, that their testimony of salvation or being a Christian has no fruits. And if they don't have fruit, evidence that they have faith, then they really don't have faith. For the Apostle Paul, when he saw this church and they got saved, there was an immediate evidence in their life that they had faith in Christ, that it was something that had changed their life, and the activity afterwards proved out that they were ones who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and were transformed. They were regenerated because of that. There was a change of life. This faith worked. It was their vocation now, we might say. They lived uh, to live out their faith in the world that they lived in. Paul also says this, that he remembers their labor of love or that a love that labors. Okay, this word there for labor is the idea of working to the point of, well, we would say of being really sweaty. Okay, uh, of toiling to the point of complete exhaustion. This church was one that proved out what 1 Corinthians 13 says, that you, there you have those 16 action verbs describing what love is like. If you love and you're selfless towards others, you're going to be tired out to the point of exhaustion because you're going to be meeting needs of individuals and it may be time it may be energy it may be resources but if you're attempting to meet the needs of individuals around you it's going to be a sacrifice on your part which if a christian realizes this uh, they are sacrificing self for others so it is when christ came into this world he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners he died for us he showed and displayed his love towards us to the point of completely giving up his life. So it ought to be when Christians get saved that they are weary, you might say this, weary and well-doing. They're, they're doing what they can for others. And it's not because they just are ones who are given to working. No, it's because they're displaying and reflecting in their own life the love that was first displayed to them in Jesus Christ. 
They're showing it to the others to the point of sacrificial exhaustion. And this church at Thessalonica in the few weeks that Paul was there was able to see this. But you also see here that the Apostle Paul says it was exciting to see this, that he was excited to see their patience of hope, or we might put it this way, a hope that endures. Now, sometimes we get the wrong idea of what endurance is, is that it is passive. You know, events come along and you just kind of, okay, they're, they're here and it's, you might even describe it kind of stoically. You just kind of bear underneath it and you're like, okay, I have to put up with this. That's not really the idea of what endurance is. Okay, I picture it this way, and I've seen this happen on a few occasions uh, when I've been moving or helping people move. You've always got that one guy that can move all the items by himself. And uh, I've seen individuals, and I, I saw this on several occasions, where you have an individual that you're getting ready to move something like a refrigerator. And of course, they strap this thing up, and then what he does is goes, okay, I'll handle this, and he picks it up on his back and walks down the stairs with it. That's the idea of what endurance is. You may be under a weight or a burden, but you're moving. You're moving in a direction. You're moving forward. You're not letting this collapse you. That's what's going on here. This is a church that suffered persecution immediately as soon as they started following Christ. They were suffering at the hands of the community and people that were there, and they did not let them stop the, that stop them. You go, why? Because they had a confidence. Amen. You say, what's the confidence? Well, this is the, uh, the confidence in Jesus Christ. Titus talks about this, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. These Christians realize, and as we go through this book, we're going to have in each passage talk about, or each chapter talk about future events, things yet ahead that are promised to us by God that will occur. And these Thessalonians had been taught in the short time that they had about some of these things that were yet future to them that God had in store for them, and they would look forward to this especially the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, because then everything would change for them. Their bodies would be changed. Their residency would be changed. All of these things would change. So the things in this life, they realized were temporary and they could bear through them, even though there were weights upon them in this life and pressures upon them in this life, they could go forward and do the things that they needed to do. They weren't crushed by these things. They were moving somewhere. And so for the Apostle Paul, in a very short period of time, he saw this in the church here. He was excited about these characteristics that all Christians should have, but in this church, it was active. It wasn't like, okay, can we see this going on? No, it was going on, and it was obvious to all that this was happening. And so we see right from the start a, a Christianity that's connecting is one that's going to be active, and you see it in these characteristics. But second of all, we have to go back a second and uh, look at what the Apostle Paul said was the beginning of this connecting Christianity. The Apostle Paul talks about uh, when they got saved. When he was there, when they came and accepted Christ, he was there for that event. 
And he, he talks about this, and he starts off with a kind of unusual statement in verse number four. He says, I'm praying for you, and I'm excited about what the Lord has been doing actively in your Christian life. And he says, and I know you're saved. And he puts it in a way that we probably would not normally put it, but he says this in verse four, knowing beloved bre- or brethren beloved, your election of God, that you've been chosen by God. Now, you use that kind of terminology and people suddenly begin to get a little antsy at the fact that, okay, we've been chosen by God. What does that specifically mean? Now, that's not a term that you typically or would want to use on individuals who are not saved yet. Because there's a whole uh, area and uh, groups of churches that emphasize this and there's people going, I wonder if I'm elect. And the answer is no, that's not a question for you. You should be asking yourself, am I saved? Have I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior? That's my responsibility. I'm challenged to call upon the name of the Lord, not find out whether or not I'm part of the elect. But when you're saved, what you begin to understand that there was a whole thing behind the scenes where God was at work using His working and His power behind the scenes uh, to get you saved, even though you have a free will. And you say, how does that work? I don't know. And people that try and connect how those two things work together, it's impossible. People have been trying for 2,000 years to connect how that works. But what it does indicate is this, is that God is not just haphazardly uh, seeing people saved, that when people are saved, this is part of something that God has been looking forward to for a long time. He's been planning for it. Romans chapter 8, we went through that uh, almost a year ago, that passage of Scripture. But there the Apostle Paul just talks about the whole process of salvation, how God's involved in it. And he makes this statement, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Okay, those that are saved. Well, then he describes how these people got saved. God working behind the scenes, and it says this, for whom He did foreknow, talking about God, He also did predestinate for what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son. Do you realize that salvation wasn't just merely you getting saved? Okay, I'm not going to hell now, which that is a good thing for our sins. But the purpose of God was not just merely to rescue us from hell, but what he's looking to do is to make us look like his son that we reflect what he's like. And, and so in eternity past, God is, uh, even as it describes this election that's before the foundation of the world, what he is planning for is your salvation, that you look like his son. And so what he does is he has this whole process there. The apostle Paul finishes off that you be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn. Jesus might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Moreover, those who he did predestinate, them he also called and whom he called, them he also glorified and whom he justified, excuse me, whom he called, them he justified and whom he justified, them he glorified. Realize this, that one day we will stand and be like Christ. Scripture tells us we'll see him as he is. And for us as believers, we have to to recognize the fact that that process of being conformed to the image of the Son isn't something that's only when you get to heaven. That process is starting right now. 
And God is changing uh, individuals. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here, I know your election of God. And he goes, well, how do you know that? Because he saw what God did. The transformation, the radical transformation that happened in these people. We'll get to the end of this chapter here where there is a radical transformation of life and thinking that takes place. And so the Apostle Paul says, I know this, and let me talk about what it was like when I came into your uh, community and I began to preach there. Look at verse number five. He says, for our gospel, now understand that word gospel is not just merely uh, some sort of plan that you explain to people, it's presenting a person. And that word gospel means good news. And when you have the good news, there's a presentation of a person and his name's Jesus. Okay, he is the good news. He's the answer. He's the solution. So when the Apostle Paul says this, for our gospel, when we came in, came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us, of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. See, what happened here is that the gospel was powerful. Realize this, that the gospel is more than you just saying words. Okay, you have to have words. With faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. People don't get saved unless they hear the word. The explanation of who Jesus Christ is. But there is something working behind the scenes. You go, who? The Holy Spirit is. And there are times where you don't feel good, and you've had this, uh, perhaps this opportunity, where you don't feel good, or you don't feel like you've uh, presented the gospel all that well. But what you're responsible for doing is just simply giving the word, the explanation of who Jesus Christ is, what he's done. And there's a power working behind this, and the Holy Ghost uh, who is a person, he's the, the third person of the Godhead, and he's working behind the scenes. We find from John chapter 16 and 17 that he's convincing men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's convincing them of their own sin. He's convincing them that they don't have a righteousness that can make them stand before God, and that they're in trouble of having judgment. This is going on. The Lord said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into this world and he's going to do that kind of work. And when the Apostle Paul said when he came, and understand this, Paul was not an elaborate preacher. Okay, we sometimes go, well, you know, he, he had to be an incredible preacher. Uh, Paul's own description of himself was he didn't look very good and he didn't sound very good. There were certain individuals like Apollos who were individuals who were fairly polished and they were known for their speaking. They had power just in their giving of things. But the Apostle Paul said, you know, I'm not very good looking and I'm not the one who uh, speaks well. But he knew the word that he was preaching had power behind it. Apostle Paul in Romans 1 and verse 16 said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. People get saved, and it's not just merely because of the word. God is working behind the scenes. And for the Apostle Paul, when he came into this church, he preached there, and he probably was not the healthiest and the strongest. Say, so how do you know that? Well, think about the place that he's just come from. Philippi. And think about this. That place in Philippi, one of the last things that happened to him is that he was beaten with rods and then held in a prison clamped down by the legs 
You say, so he probably wasn't feeling the best when he walked into Thessalonica. And the answer is no. He wasn't healthy. He was not strong. He was not in the best of health. But when he came and preached there in three weeks' time in that synagogue, he's seeing people suddenly have the light go on and they're understanding that they're a sinner and that they need this Jesus who he's talking about. And they're going, we need this. And for them, there's this complete change of life uh, that is going on. And it's instant, and they say, it's in an instant. Really, it's in just a couple of days, it's obvious these people have changed. The Apostle Paul says, you know what manner of men we were like. And as we get into chapter 2 of uh, this book, we're going to find out. Paul's going to talk about what he was like. That they weren't people trying to cheat people or lie or, and, and cover over certain things. They were very open about their lives and what they preached. But he says, you, you did this, and when you look there in verse 5, it says that the gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. What that idea of much assurance is this, is that you were very assured of your salvation. There was a confidence when you were saved. You were saved. You knew it. You changed. And there was this excitement of these people. And you look at verse number six, you say, well, what was the reception? Well, these people get saved, and what do they immediately do? They become followers of Paul. You say, oh, well, then he's just gathering people to follow himself. Well, you have to remember that in other places, the Apostle Paul says, be imitators of me. Same word is here. Be mimics or mimes of me as I am of Christ. See, these people immediately as they get saved are going, okay, how do we live this Christian life? What does it look like to be a Christian? Okay, let's find individuals that are Christians and follow them around and see what they talk about and how they live their lives. And these individuals followed Paul around for these, these few weeks that he's there and they're following him in life and words and actions. They become imitators of him. And this is despite the fact that there is, as you see there in verse number six, that you receive the word in much affliction. There's a bunch of Jews in this community that aren't happy that people are going to the church rather than the synagogue. And that means loss of income and loss of reputation for them. And so what they're doing is the best as they possibly can through threats and violence. As we said, they hire out the criminals in the town to threaten individuals they're followers of Christ, that this church, these individuals, they don't care. They follow Christ and they're following individuals who are followers of Christ and they're imitating what they're looking like and they're reflecting in their life what it is to be a Christian and they do it with, verse 6, look at the end, they do it with joy. You know, there are people who are Christians who go through some of the most miserable experiences, and when you see them, they are smiling. And you're going, there's no reason you should be. You should be crushed by what you're going underneath. And you go, where does that come from? Well, realize this, that when a person gets saved, they have the Holy Spirit that saved them, that is now working in them to sanctify them. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is this, love, which is something that is not natural, and the next thing it says this, joy. 
People who are saved can have love and joy. They can be selfless and they can stand up in difficult times with a great, we might say, or a, an attitude that reflects the joy of knowing God. They can do this even though there's all sorts of op- opposition against them. In fact, when this church gets saved and these individuals become followers of Christ, what the Apostle Paul says about them is this, is that verse number 7, you have this statement, you did this and you were transformed and you faced all sorts of difficulties and you did it with joy and you acted out Christ so that you were, verse 7, so that ye were in, <coughs> excuse me, in samples. That word in samples is a word that is a type or a pattern. It was used to describe uh, someone who would take a, um, a chisel of some kind and hammer that into something. Or it was used to describe the impression of a seal into wax. And what the Apostle Paul says is what you did as Christians, you put out a pattern or a stamp for people to go, what does a Christian look like? Oh, hey, there's that church in Thessalonica where they're acting like Christians. They're reflecting what Christ is like. And throughout, and for us, it's kind of hard because we don't know our geography as well uh, as when it comes to ancient places. But Macedonia and Achaia is saying uh, something like this, that they were known throughout, in, in our culture, uh, they were known throughout the Midwest. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a large region. Achaia and, uh, and Macedonia today covers uh, all of Greece. That region, and the Apostle Paul says, there are people throughout the region that know what Christianity is like and they can understand what it's like because they see it patterned in you. And this is why the Apostle Paul, going back, says this is a a Christianity that is connecting with the community they're in. People are going, this is what Christ is like. You look at verses 8 through 10, you see this testimony that they have. Okay, the Apostle Paul then lays it out again. Let me tell you what the change was like. Okay, you got saved, but I really want to expand on what your testimony is amongst people. Because in verse number eight, it says this, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. I mean, that's an incredible statement. He's saying this, what, you, what your lives are doing, that word sounded out, you could underline it and just say trumpeted out. Okay, it's hard to miss a trumpet. Okay, you might miss the triangle in the uh, band and you might miss a, a violin, but it's really hard to miss the trumpet, the brass section when they start blaring. That's what the Apostle Paul said. What your Christianity is doing is it's blaring forth. It's echoing forth. That's the word in the Greek is echo. Uh, this idea that you have sounded forth in both Macedonia and Achaia and also every place where your faith to God were to spread abroad. It's not only having impact in those two regions. Remember Thessalonica on a map. It's a modern city today. It's Salinka that's in uh, Greece today. It is the uh, second largest city in Greece. It's a port city. 
What this was was a community that was set on the Ignatian Way, which would be like saying it's on a major interstate highway, and it's a port for all of Macedonia, all the goods going in and out of Macedonia. It's at a crossroads, so you've got people that are from the region there, but you've also got people who are just passing through on business and other things. And when these people are coming through and they're coming to this community of Thessalonica, they're confronted with the fact that there's individuals in that community that love this one named Jesus. And they live like it. They, they can't get past the fact uh, of going through this town without hearing his name or hearing something about him or meeting someone who knows Jesus Christ that they're sounding forth uh, the gospel that happened. And you say, well, what are they sounding forth? Well, here's the testimony that they have. Verse 9, it says this, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He's basically saying, here's what happened in your past, what's going on presently, and what you're looking forward in the future. He said, in your past, this is what happened. You turn to God from idols. Realize the culture that they were raised in, everybody worshipped idols. I mean, it was rare to even have uh, individuals that perhaps believed that there was only one God. No, the, the whole culture they lived in was a culture that believed in a whole panoply of gods that were out there, that uh, were there, and they served these gods. And as a result, they lived their life going around the festivals and the festivities with all those gods and the activities that went on with that. They lived their life around these things. And suddenly they got saved, and this is that word there is turned. It's a word that describes what conversion is. You sometimes hear that term. When a person gets saved, they're turning from something to someone. That's what conversion is. And for the Apostle Paul, he said, what happened was this, is that you lived your life and your life was around all these gods and that's how your life was described. And all of a sudden, you almost on a, a dime changed in an instant. And suddenly what you began to do is that you were serving the one living and true God. Now that statement is not simply to say there that there was, well, God is a God amongst gods. Understand that the statement of the living and true God, it's just simply saying God, the one who's really alive, and he's genuine. All these other gods that are out, the idols that are out there are not real. They're fake. They're frauds. This one's real because he really does live. He really does exist. He really does respond. And the Apostle Paul says, you turned in the past. That word turned is a, in the Greek is a one-time event word. Okay, it happened sometime. For you, when you got saved, there was an occasion where you came to the point where you said, I am turning from this life and I'm turning to Christ. I'm putting my faith in him. Okay, there is that turn that happens. It's an, it's an act. But then the Apostle Paul says this. Then what happened was this, that presently what you did is that you were serving the living God. And you ought to underline that word serve because it's almost too light. 
Okay, serve means, okay, uh, you know, I can have servant uh, in a household that goes and works and comes and leaves and whatever. No, this term here is not that word that says I'm ministering to people's needs. It's the word for slavery. You have a new master. Your life now revolves around what he wants. Realize this, when you're a slave, you don't get to have opinions. You don't get to have a right to choose what you're going to do. You don't have any of those things. And what the Apostle Paul said, your life went from being in this frivolous life of following after idols and at a point it turned and what your life was this is that you now were a slave to Christ. You followed what he said. You looked for what he wanted. You did what he said. This is what you did. And you had a complete transformation. And that word serve is in the present tense. That means this, that they're continually doing this. It's an all-the-time thing. All the time, people would recognize these individuals as being followers of Jesus Christ. This is why when you get to places like Antioch, that people finally go, these people are Christians. And it was a derogatory term, and you go, why? Because all they did was live for Christ and talk about Christ and act like Christ and give their whole life to him. They would be a slave to him, and the community there just goes, oh, these are Christ ones, or little Christ, and that became the name of these Christians who, to that point, had been known as followers of the way or just simply disciples. They become known as Christians. Well, this community in Thessalonica, people are going, wait a second, this person used to do certain things and be a part of the festivities here, and now they're doing everything in relation to this new individual christ they're a slave to christ you know it's like they they can't do anything without consulting christ and looking to him but ultimately what you see in this church is that they're presently well serving god but they're looking forward and they're waiting okay this is this goes along with that whole idea a hope that endures They're waiting for what? Well, they're waiting, verse 10, they're waiting for his son. They're waiting for Jesus Christ to return from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. I mean, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that one day, what that meant is that their bodies that might be laid in a grave would one day be raised anew. The resurrected Christ is a promise of life eternal. And they're looking for this one to return. Now, it's going to lead to discussion in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's some that are going, hey, we missed it. No, the Lord came back and we missed it. And the Apostle Paul goes, wait a second. No, you didn't. You know, you've been looking for him and waiting for him, but you didn't miss him. Okay, let me explain what's going to happen before he comes back. But they were looking for this, this one whom Jesus was raised from the dead by God, even Jesus, which has delivered us from the wrath to come. Do you realize that this theme of wrath is not a side note in the scripture? It's something that's trumpeted time and time again, that God is angry with sin and sinners, and that one day he will have to judge them. Okay, Part of God's character is that he's gracious and merciful and he's loving and kind and all of this. But there's the other side where God is just, where he said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's the punishment right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 for when Adam and Eve sinned, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
There's a judgment to be paid. And you say, well, what is that idea of death? It's a separation. If you think of the word death as a separation, one day my body will physically separate from my soul and spirit. But there will come a time when my soul and spirit will be reunited together with my body. And in some cases, for individuals who have lived their whole life and they've rejected God, they will be cast, body, soul, and spirit, into a lake which burns with fire and brimstone. And the scripture says in Revelation chapter 20 that this is the second death. You go, how is that possible? Because their body, soul, and spirit are united together. Because death is a separation. These people are separated from God forever. God judges sin. And that judgment is this, is that he will be separate from them forever in a place of torment, a real place. And what these believers were excited about is this, is there's a Savior who's coming, who died and rose from the dead to give me life eternal so that I will not face the wrath to come. People don't like talking about that word wrath because in their lifetime and in their experience, they've seen people who have been angry. Okay? When I say they're wrathful or they're given to wrath and that type of thing, and they're throwing things and they're, you know, it's just, you know, you, you, you go, okay, that person's really angry. Understand when it talks about a biblical wrath, this is something where God is very, I would say this, very level about this. It's not that God is just randomly going, okay, I'm going to... No, God has just said, this is the case. This is what's going to happen. The judgment is very clear, and it's handed out. It's going to happen. But these people were rejoicing at the fact, here we've got one who's coming, who's promised us life eternal, that we've escaped judgment because of who he is. We can't wait to see him because of the deliverance that he's given to us. And so they lived their life serving the Lord presently, but looking forward to the time that they were going to be with him. And you say, what were they doing? They were calling others, hey, you can be with him too. You don't have to be involved in the wrath to come. He's one that delivers and will save you. So you start off with this church. It is a church that is filled with activity, but a sold-out following of Jesus Christ that no pressure from the outside world could stifle, could stop. And so this is why this is a church that was one that was connecting with people in their region of Macedonia, Achaia, and others that crossed their path. They had obviously been saved, and it was reflected in a life of activity. That ought to be a testimony that's said about us, that we are individuals who our Christian life is something that people can see. That they can know and can hear uh, from our mouth and see by our life that we are Christians. That's the kind of Christianity that connects with a culture that is collapsing. And so as we go through this book, uh, we ought to re just reflect on the fact that are we ones who show forth the fruit of salvation like these individuals did? The change that took place. That we ought to look like this so that people are going, I want that. There's a change. There's something obviously going on there in that person's life. They know Christ. There are Christians who are following Christ. They have a Christianity that is something that has impact and so may we be a church like that and filled, uh, a church filled with individuals that reflect what was going on in the life of the Thessalonians.
both in our past that we turn from idols, presently we're serving the Lord, but we're looking forward. This isn't it. We're looking forward to being with God forever because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the testimony of individuals like this. And, and some of us were impacted and changed by meeting people like this that uh, were saved and lived their life this way. There was an activeness about the Christianity. Lord, may this be what's said about our Christianity that people could know by our words and by our life that we aren't uh, given to this life, we're not given to this culture, we're not given to what's going on here, but that we're living for Christ. We're a slave to Him. We do what He says. We think the way that He does. We're looking for those things that are pleasing in His sight, and we do them. May we have a Christianity like that. So Lord, may we reflect a transformed life, a saved life, and may it be active enough for people to see. We love you, Lord. We thank you for uh, sending your son to save us. We look forward to him coming back someday. May we live like people that are waiting for him to come back. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.